This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. And by hype, I mean unrealistic near-term projections of technological change. Our media environment is full of hype. PR, hot air, puffery, propaganda, marketing, advertising pretending to be news, ballyhoo, razzmatazz, and straight-up BS. Probably the best examples of this are all of the outlandish claims made in the last decade about self-driving cars and AI in quotation marks. Remember when self-driving cars were supposed to be right around the corner? In 2015, Elon Musk said self-driving cars that would drive, and I quote, anywhere, would be here within two or three years. In 2016, Lyft CEO John Zimmer predicted that self-driving cars would all but end car ownership by 2025. Well, now Lyft has sold off its self-driving car unit. And then on July 3rd, 2021, Elon Musk tweeted, Generalized self-driving is a hard problem, and it requires solving a large part of real-world AI. Didn't expect it to be so hard, but the difficulty is obvious in retrospect, which is like, whoops, whoopsie, bro. Messed that up when I was smoking too many J's, confusing my fantasies for reality, and talking out of my neck. Now, maybe you're saying, yeah, but I'm no sucker. I knew that predictions that AI would soon lead to massive and problematic technological unemployment were bunk, and I didn't fall for it. To which I reply, good for you. But then we have to ask ourselves, beyond rendering some people foolish, does hype have broader societal costs? And the answer is yes. Hype can play a productive role in society in guiding action and investment, but it also misleads policymakers, investors, and citizens. It distracts them from our technological realities and real pressing problems that we face today. And it comes with at least one other cost. Hype is one of a few factors that lead to bubbles around new technologies. And bursting bubbles hurt people. Sometimes it even kills I found no book as helpful for thinking about what causes bubbles around technology than Brent Goldfarb's and David Kirsch's book, Bubbles and Crashes, The Boom and Bust of Technological Innovation. Goldfarb is an economist, and Kirsch is a historian with strong social scientific leadings. Both of them teach at the Robert H. Smith School of Business at the University of Maryland. 
Goldfarb and Kirsch are, in my estimation, a neat duo. And I think, among other things, Bubbles and Crashes is a fascinating example of interdisciplinary social scientific theory and research. And as you'll hear in the interview, the book puts forward a theory of when and why bubbles emerge around new technologies, as well as what we can do to improve this situation. I think Bubbles and Crashes is an important book that has not gotten the love it deserves. You should give it some love, and I hope you enjoy this interview. Get excited. David, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great to see you. Great to see you. Um, I hope you won't regret it. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, guys, what led you to write this book, and what were you hoping to uh, accomplish with it? Oh, boy. Um, David, do you want to take a crack at this? or should... All right, so I'll, I'll start. Uh, we had written a previous paper on the dot-com boom and bust, and uh, we were frustrated by that paper because it had uh, what we'd like to call an N of one. So we studied the dot-com boom and bust and you can't really understand the causes of a bubble if you just have one bubble and mm -hmm. you called sampling on bubble. So we wanted to look at a broad range. We decided to look at a broad range of technologies and try to figure out if we could find un antecedents or underlying causes or things that made certain technologies more or less likely to be subjects of market speculation. But that was just a paper. And um, I, in my ignorance, pulled David along to write a book, which he did not want to do, because he'd already <laughs> done that. And he was like, you don't want to do that. And uh, I won that battle, mostly because what we were trying to do didn't fit into a paper. So we had no choice. And in the process made um, at least my parents very happy because now they have something to hold up the short leg of their coffee table. Right. Um, you know, you guys lay out a, a kind of simple and clear model, I think, in of how bubbles form. So do you want to outline, st start by outlining that for us? David, you want to give it a shot? Yeah, I think, you know, the the one thing maybe Brent left out in that, that uh, account of the book is that the working title for most of its of its life was when are there not bubbles right and so i think that was you know we were mm -hmm. really trying to bring some kind of methodological rigor to the study of bubbles and you know really focus on uh, finding some something that was um associated with with bubbles but not um you know <clears throat> always so so the idea was you know sometimes certain technologies generate bubbles and certain technologies don't and so that that was really the trying to figure out like mm -hmm. which ones do and and what how, how would we kind of um you know describe or characterize those technologies that do cause bubbles and you know what and kind of how does that path work? And so we ended up with this kind of four part theory mm -hmm. of, of bubbles where you, you sort of need uncertainty 
So all of these big technologies have a degree of uncertainty associated with them. You get something new. How is it going to be used? Telephone. Telephone comes along. Uh, you know, how quickly is it going to be adopted? Um, who, which customers are going to use it? What what different um, kind of applications will they find for it? Will it, uh, you know, men use it, women use it, uh, farmers, um, business people uh, to talk or to, uh, you know, do, uh, uh, you know, to, to transact business, trade stocks, what have you. So there, we you need uncertainty associated with this, with this innovation, and then um, you also need, or what we observe to be common in most of these cases is you need lots of uh, novice investors, investors who don't know what they're doing. So, uh, you know whether that's because the, uh, entry costs into a market have fallen, so or they're new markets opening, new ways to trade, uh, uh, new new kind of venues for exchange. So, you know, those two, two features we knew were really important. And lots of people who'd studied bubbles beforehand had seen that. I think where what we were, where we added something new to that was that we, we observed um, that you need this, what we call a pure play, you need you, there has to be something that people can focus on uh, that's really a clear the, the the kind of embodiment of the uncertainty that the, the new investors can focus on. So, you know, in the, the, the dot com era, for instance, in that paper that Brent was talking about earlier, there were all these, you know, the the dot com IPOs and those those companies just tended to attract, uh, you know, you could. It was a very clear, pure play. If you were, you know, it, it wasn't embedded in a bunch of other technologies or in a like, you know, imbricated in some complex system. It was just here it is, bet on it. And and then I think the fourth piece of it was the importance of of narrative. Uh, we call it narrative, but you know, the idea that uh, and and we sort of got picked this up a little bit from um, Robert Schiller in his. He has this, you know, uh, book on narrative economics, sort of calling for the importance, you know, invigorating uh, the economics with an appreciation of the importance of narrative, which I think cuts uh, very much against the grain uh, to a lot of practitioners in in, uh, in in economics, but which is obviously bread and butter to those of us who study uh, history of technology, history of business, etc. And the idea there is that. The, the narrative is what sort of coordinates everyone's thinking about the the thing. So you need the narrative and the pure play to give the novices a, something to bet on the uncertainty. If that puts put, puts all four things into maybe one sentence. Yeah. For you. Brent, do you want to add anything on the model? I'll I'll just add that. Um, no, I think David did uh, an excellent. Excellent job. The, the, the surprising thing, at least to me, was just the power of the narrative to transform uh, both industrial history mm. uh, and industry outcomes. And uh, there's limits 
in 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 some sense the you know there there were very real you know one of the bubbles we study is aviation in the late twenties, and you know there's very and, and the narrative runs uh, runs into the wall that is the limitations of the technology and how quickly that technology can improve even with a whole bunch of investment, and so it's not all powerful. Mm. But it is compelling and drives the behavior of many people and has a lot of uh, social welfare implications. Mm -hmm. Like people get caught up in stories to their detriment. Yeah. But at the same time, you need it in order to coordinate some sort of vision in the future and coordinate action. So they're not all evil or something like that. I don't want to like that's just not. Yeah, true. yeah, yeah. Um, there's not there's not a lot. I mean, there are some evil people in your book, maybe, but there's not that's not really the focus here. No, I would say no, not at all. Right. Um, among other things, I, I see bubbles and crashes as a really neat interdisciplinary project. And I, I want to kind of give listeners a sense of how it came to be from the, the different traditions you guys came from. So, David, you wrote an earlier book on electric vehicles. Um, in the first decade or so of the 20th century, and you've also done some important work preserving the records of the dot-com bust of the first decade of, of this century. So how did how did bubbles and crashes connect in your mind to the earlier work that you had done? Yeah, so for me, I realized actually both books, in a sense, were sort of uh, social science history. Uh, I'm, I don't know if that phrase is still acceptable or au courant, but, uh, you know, the, the idea that we kind of can, uh, combine, uh, or, or, or that we can allow social science to shape mm -hmm. some of the questions we ask as historians. So, you know, my, the, 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 bub, the uh, electric vehicle book was really a, started as a question about past dependence and lock-in. Mm. Uh, so that it really came out of conversations I'd had with uh, with people like Paul David and Brian Arthur um, when I was a PhD student at Stanford, and I was sort of looking for a case to test. Mm -hmm. It was it it was you know the, my case selection was informed by social science, which again some of my historian colleagues might shudder at like how how could you. But that's, I felt that that was a worthy question that the social scientists might actually need some history to help, help them answer. You know, it is path, is the, uh, the choice of internal, was the choice of internal combustion an instance of path dependent uh, technological choice where technological selection, where perhaps the best technology didn't win. That was the right. question. And in the same way, I feel like bubbles and crashes came out of this sort of when are there not bubbles problem, this sort of social science informed problem with our with um, sort of prevailing theories of of um, of bubbles that, you know, I, I'm not a social scientist um, and I don't play one on TV, <laughs> uh, but I, I'm, I I kind of am just familiar enough and just interested enough in the kinds of questions mm -hmm. that social science is asking that I feel like every now and again, we have to bring, you know, kind of take that deep dive into the history to figure out 
um, if we can help social science in that instance. Mm -hmm. And Brent, um, you have a PhD in economics. So what made you want to work with a historian? Did something terrible happen in your childhood? Or was there an extra explanation? I really, David doesn't even know this. I didn't want to go into this. Um, no, 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 no. So, so yeah, yes, I have a PhD in, in, in economics, but uh, my advisor was an economic historian. Uh, and uh, I was always interested in history, actually, from before I, I, I got my PhD. And so uh, it was a very natural. You know, Lee, there, there, there's two answers to this question. So the first is I love going into libraries and smelling old books and picking up old things. And I feel that's a very soulful activity. So pursuing history and understanding history uh, is a form of consumption for me. Having said that, uh, I don't. I, I think we ignore history and the context of big economic phenomenon at our peril. I sometimes refer to economics as the asocial social science because its theory of behavior is so devoid of realism that uh, it, it has led us astray in understanding how people behave and in the motivations for those behaviors. And, uh, and so uh, I think that history provides, and in this case, technological history, because that's my interest, uh, provides a tool to demonstrate the importance of understanding the contextual factors around decisions that, mm -hmm. say, a, neo, a pure neoclassical econo economist might ignore mm -hmm. uh, or, frankly, be ignorant of. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the things I like about the book, and I think this is, you know, this is where the interdisciplinary social science history part comes in, one place it really comes in, uh, beyond the theory building you guys do, is that you use this list of 58 technologies to kind of test out your ideas, um, which I think is just really neat. And it's obviously not the way many historians of technology or business for that matter would approach the, the topic. So where, where, maybe we should talk about that for a second. Where did the list come from? And you know, could you give a kind of a few examples just to kind of like demonstrate, you know, show the wide variety of things on the list? Oh, what a fun, fun question. So I want to give David credit if he found the list uh, and and for that. But I will point out, uh, well, before uh, David, I'll let you describe what's on the list. But I will point out that um, it was written by a Soviet economist or it came out of a field of study founded by a Soviet uh, economist who who had this idea. I can, I can never pronounce his name. Uh, can. Kondratia, thank you, um, who uh, had this idea that uh, some technologies lead to, as they diffuse through the economy, lead to long-term growth. And, and uh, I will note that this is kind of an inspiration for what is now general purpose technology, the theory of general purpose technology theory. Uh, and uh, he has a very sad history in that he was executed in the Soviet, in the Stalinist purge, uh, 
after 10 years in the gulag. So, I mean, it's like a very tragic figure uh, as it happens. But he left us with this gift, which is uh, this idea of long wave theory. Um, and, and David, do you want to take it from here? How you, you know, you put together different yeah, layers? So the long wave theorists, you know, th this is sort of what, uh, an arcane little backwater of academia uh, that was uh, um, pretty uh, incidental to any kind of mainstream work in either economics or uh, or history, really. But uh, there was a small group that was working on this idea of sort of economic long waves. And in the 1980s, they commissioned a series of, of papers to try and identify the sort of the most important technologies or the, you know, to kind of periodize everything uh, according to long waves. And so there was a an edited volume and we kind of plucked these uh, compendia out of the edited volume and then said, well, if, you, if the technology appears on all three or you know, two of the three compendia, then it must really be important. <laughs> and it has some, you know, there's some really goofy things on there. Uh, you know, the, I think that the automatic watch, right. you know, the, the, the long wave theorists must have been really just enamored of their of their automatic watches because <laughs> yeah. that clearly was something really really important uh or you know the uh what is it the the hydrofoil right. or the uh is, is on there and and you know again like it's basically just an application of internal combustion to blow air over water or um you know, whatever. Uh, um, but, you know, there are also some very interesting and important technologies that you would, uh, I think we do associate with these long waves and things like internal combustion and the, the uh, you know, the telegraph and the telephone and, um, you know, I'm trying to think of some other. Well, there's, there's uh, you know, important chemicals like um, nylon. nylon, synthetic fabrics. Mm -hmm. uh, important yeah. processes is steel making, which uh, are not that interesting to anybody who, except those that care about steel making, but are actually really fundamental to our, our economy. Right. The assembly lines on Jet there. Engine. That's a big deal. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the assembly line, super important, um, but no pure play. Right, right, exactly. If we go yeah. back to our model. Like, how yeah. do you invest in the pure play of the assembly mm -hmm. line? Not possible. Yeah. Um, I think you know. In retrospect, I think those the list probably misses a lot of consumption-oriented mm -hmm. technologies. That in you know, if we were to redo it, um, you know, kind of looking back across time, I think we might. Uh, you, you might want to think about things more from a consumption perspective or think about things more with a little bit of a broader, say, gender lens mm -hmm. or think some of these other kind of approaches. Uh, you know, these these long wave theorists were, you know, white guys uh, kind of, um, you know, sitting in in various obscure econ departments or what have you. So, right on. Um, can you, you know, I want yeah it, and, and i think it's a fun list uh just the mix of things on there i think is really great uh, before i lose sight of it a couple times you guys have talked about um david's mentioned that the book was called winner they're not bubbles so 
Is the idea there with that that old title that bubbles are ubiquitous, that they're around all the time, or uh, is it just like when do they not develop around a new technology? Principally the latter, uh, but I think the, the more we spend looking at this phenomenon, we may be uh, more inclined to associate ourselves with the former characterization, like there are bubbles mm -hmm. everywhere. And, you know, p part of it is, you know, when, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we, I have a theory of bubbles now, wherever I look, I see bubbles. It, it's, um, yeah. it, it, I, I try not to, not to do that. Although I'm sure my students would say uh, I fail. Yeah. I mean, it's a way to re like really focus the question on this epistemic failure in other studies of bubbles. Right? Mm -hmm. You cannot just look at bubbles and try to understand what caused them, the unique cases when bubbles didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was our device to keep the focus on that as we worked on the book. Uh, and then uh, when we got to the final stages of the book, we got some feedback that that is really a terrible title. Right. Okay. Uh, I know so, that. I, I've lived that life too. Yep. Yeah. So we, <laughs> we reluctantly gave it up. Um, maybe we should, you know, I should have probably done this earlier, but maybe we should talk about how you guys define bubbles because that will help the rest of the conversation, I think. Well, really the following of our book is kind of a bubble. Um, the... <laughs> So, so a bubble is when the value of an asset goes, is beyond its, like that's the traditional definition when it's outside of its fundamental uh, value, which would be defined as the long-term discounted cash flows. Mm -hmm. right? um, so basically take the net present value. If you're above the net present value, then uh, it's some form of a bubble. In practice, this is not a very useful definition because at any point in time, you can't know what the future cash flows from any yeah. um, innovation is going to happen because there's, there, or any firm because there's just a lot of uncertainty about the future. What did Yogi Berra say? Prophecy is hard, especially about the future? Something, Something like, like that. Something like that, yeah. And uh, so we default to something else, uh, more practical uh, a practical definition one is that the 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 price has to be a historical anomaly in the sense that it is if you just project the trend seven years back and forth if you're two standard deviations from that trend we're going to call that a bubble uh, we're going to call that a boom and a bust uh, period because it implies that it came up and then back down uh, and then uh, if there were a lot of novices present during the time, we're going to then call the boom and bust a bubble. Mm -hmm. So if there are a bunch of inexperienced people investing and it, was, it went up and down, and we're like, yeah, there's probably a lot of mistakes happening in that market. <clears throat> and that, in practice, is how we're going to define a bubble. Mm -hmm. We then go even further uh, afterwards, and we say, if we can't find a narrative that went along to explain this, we're not also not going to call it a bubble. Huh. I almost forgot about the narrative. Mm -hmm. David, you want to add anything? Well, I think the hard part is around rationality, you know, and sort of, um, you, on the one hand, I think we've wanted 
to try and talk to the financial economists and people who have thought about, you know, sort of save the theory, if you will, try and explain away <laughs> these uh, aberrant episodes. And so we've tried, you know, we sort of, I think, struggled around, you know, is our theory a, ration, a, a, a rational theory? Uh, and, you know, I think um, the, always bearing in mind that um, maybe uh, the rationality is the exception, not the not the norm. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think I think we're sort With of humans. dancing between that a little bit. And, and you know, we tried very hard to um, capture and represent these episodes in ways that a rational theorist could understand and test and evaluate, but we didn't want to just merely be confined by a, a, um, the requirement of rationality. So that in, yeah. in, in some of these instances, it is clear that there's the narrative is operating and it's not um, necessarily comporting with a, a rational mm. view of, of market behavior. Mm hmm. Dave, sometimes something I thought, you know, I've talked to you about before and I wanted to kind of get on the table before we go a little bit deeper into the theory you guys put forward is that you both teach entrepreneurship. And I think you you all you all see this book as connected to um, thinking about entrepreneurship and, and teaching entrepreneurship. So I wanted to talk to you guys a bit about that, how you see this book connected to entrepreneurship such a good such a meaty question Brent I can see your the wheels are spinning go <laughs> I just remember halfway through writing the book and after the ideas of narratives really came out because they weren't as present in the early parts of our thinking and it was really as the as the book progressed and we evaluated what we observed that we came to recognize or more correctly I reluctantly went along with and followed David into this idea of the importance of narrative. narrative. And uh, then at one point, I was like, well, you could think of every entrepreneur as a bubble of one. Yeah, definitely. Right? So yes. The, the entrepreneur, you know, and, and that's important. Right? And so mm. one of the, and you see this all over kind of the tech entrepreneurship Silicon Valley space, where the part, it's very clear that one of the entrepreneur's job is to construct a story mm. that places themselves, I mean themselves, the firm, as a primary beneficiary of a future that, of some future that they are proclaiming will happen. Mm -hmm. It's a story. And so the question then, you know, what, what distinguishes between an entrepreneurial story or a pitch, if you will, right, and a bubble is how many people come along <laughs> and, and the connection between that story and what is plausible 
given what we know at a certain time. And there are, you know, and those things can get pushed and disconnected and, yeah. um, you know, we, we write, I, I, I know you were going to go there, but I'll, I'll take you there anyway. Like one of the examples that we write about in the book and David and I are, are on record is, you know, Elon Musk is a master at exactly this, at, at trying yeah. to manipulate the story to get people to invest and put money behind Tesla. And mm -hmm. uh, we both underestimated, in, in a way we underestimated the power, here, let's frame this in a positive way. <laughs> uh, we underestimated the power of our own argument around uh -huh. narrative because certain actors can really drive a story and uh, change historical outcomes. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go to Tesla. I want to I want to loop back to entrepreneurship at some point, but I think we should we should get it on the table. I think people can go back to my old tweets and see that I've I've uh, made false predictions about the near term uh, viability of Tesla as well. So I think all three of us have done that. Brent, I think you actually shorted them at one point. Maybe you're still doing that, but yeah, um... I bought I bought some I bought some puts and which are um, have long since expired outside the money. So yes, I lost a little bit of money. Um, right on. Not a huge amount, right? Because I, I, I knew not to do that. But yeah, it's a good I should do that too, though, because it'll make me more no, you honest. Shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why, why Just do you give think me the got... money instead if you want to waste your money. That's, that's all right, cool. right on. <laughs> what do you? Why do you think we got Tesla so wrong? Did you think it's? Do you think it's still a bubble and um, it's just lasted longer than you predicted? David, I, I will point out that it's down what like twenty percent in the last couple of days. Yeah. So uh, it, it is. Uh, David, do you want to, do you want to take this? I'm, I'm, I'm an You know, really, am struggling with Tesla because I feel like, yeah. you know, uh, I, I may have sent this around. I'm happy to, uh, you know, have you share it again. You know, I I, I set up this little uh, spreadsheet where you know you put in seven mm -hmm. assumptions and it spits out um, a, a stock price for Tesla. And, uh, you know, five years from now and then discounts it back. And, you know, I, I defy anybody to actually come up with a fundamentals based argument for the present, yeah. you know, stock price of Tesla. It just is not it's not reasonable. So I think we are observing something weird. You know, it doesn't, I'm not yeah. I, I'm, I'm not an institutional short seller. I'm not out there. This is that that's not my job. My job, I think, is to try and understand how technology um, and gets kind of packaged and and sold in some way by by entrepreneurs, and hopefully to try and see yeah. see past that a little bit, see the that larger context in which those activities take place. And so, for me, I, I, I continue to think it's like, you know, it's not an eight hundred billion dollar firm or a Six hundred dollar billion firm or whatever. It's probably more like a fifty billion dollar firm, maybe seventy five mm -hmm. or a hundred. So you know, again, I'm not that I'm giving anybody stock advice, but like 
this just, it still seems pretty crazy to me. And so then I think we have to yeah. try and understand, well, what's going on? And here I think, um, I haven't really seen this connection made very yet explicitly, but I think actually, if you look back to the GameStop and the AMC uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, kind of bubbles of the last uh, month or so, um, I think that those techniques, these kind of social movement stock um, kind of uh, mobilization, I think those techniques were mm -hmm. actually pioneered by the Tesla bros. And in fact, it was the, the, those activities that sort of chased the shorts from the market. And once, you know, if you look at what the short sellers said when they closed out their Tesla investments, if you look at, mm -hmm. you know, they, they'll say things like, um, it's not that I'm now convinced the company is worth you know, act. Yeah. Um, it's that I can't fight the story. You know, I can't yep. fight that the mob. Um, and so I, I think anyway, I, I think, um, you know, again, I, I kind of some part of me hopes Tesla really is worth that much because then it would mean, wow, there's like we could have something that that big and that transformative occur in the world. But I just I, I just don't think it's it just doesn't yeah. feel real. And so then I think we are kind of back to sort of understanding, well, who are these novice investors? They're like Robin Hood, Tesla mm -hmm. bros, trading on margin with fractional share ownership. And, you know, the classic novices, there's massive uncertainty and talk about a story. You've got this Svengali of a storyteller with 40 million Twitter followers out there kind of spinning yarns. I, I, wow i think it's the thing we have to stop not like or like really understand so it doesn't happen again so so all right so I, i'm gonna argue both sides of this coin right now because i, I don't know um so I, I completely agree with david that that tesla must be overvalued as as uh, a car company and uh, I, I, even today, you, you see this, is it a car company or is it a technology company? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what a technology company actually is. Uh, yeah. Companies compete in markets and those markets should define them. Uh, there is a some sort of autonomous vehicle story floating around, but mm -hmm. that is probably one of the most competitive markets on the planet right now in the race to dominate that space. And so I, I'm, I, I'm not arguing, I do not argue that Tesla is uh, valued correctly. Uh, in fact, there was a tweet today, I don't know if we should bring in current <laughs> affairs, uh, yeah, but yeah. There, was, there, was a, there was a tweet today that Tesla had made more money in the last couple of weeks in Bitcoin than they ever made selling cars. Uh, so, <laughs> Um, which I think is probably true. Like that, that I didn't verify this, but it's a very plausible statement. The, uh, the flip side of this is, I think it's also hard to argue that Elon Musk and the Tesla bros did not accelerate the move 
to electric vehicles. Yeah. It did not excel and did not create a competitive response from GM and Ford and totally. VW and um, less so Toyota because Toyota is a very conservative organization. Uh, and uh, so the like this is real and this is the power of narrative mm-hmm. to keep going. And you know, if you want a prediction of Tesla, I can give you the prediction. Tesla will keep going so long as it can raise money through uh, selling fictional stories <laughs> yeah. or through selling cars. Right? Mm-hmm. And so far it's been mostly selling stories to investors and that has been their yeah. source of revenue. Uh, it, at some point, and this is what you can't predict, the, this is the Bruin Brunemeyer uh, paper, which we talked very briefly about in the book, that it's very difficult to coordinate when the music, to coordinate around when the music will stop because you don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. And so that's a big problem for short sellers. I think, Brent, mm-hmm. uh, when you said once that uh, um, Elon Musk is the most, uh, you know, it, it's not J.K. Rowling, it's Elon Musk who's the most successful fiction writer in the, on the planet. Yeah, he's good. He's good. He's a good storyteller. Give him credit. Yeah. Um, let's come back to entrepreneurship. So, you know, like the way, you know, one way I could take your message is that um, the book provides models for spinning narratives for your entrepreneurship students. Like, here's here's what success looks like. Um, it, is that the right way to take what you're saying? In practice, no, because uh, telling, you know, the exception proves the rule. It is very, there's very few people who can do what Elon Musk does. Yeah, and and, uh, we should not expect that most individuals, including our students, will ever do that, nor do I think most of them actually want to do that either. And so, yeah. but at the same time, I think that understanding that if you're going to bring somebody on a journey into an unknown future, you have to tell a story about that. And mm-hmm. that's not a terrible thing. That, that's just, mm-hmm. that's a tool of the trade. But it, it makes it yeah. difficult to define when you're telling a good story about a promising future and when you're a huckster. And... You you have to, you know, at the end of the day, you have to believe what you're saying and hope that uh, you're getting enough checks and balances from the stakeholders around you to keep you honest. Uh, Yeah. And uh, there was a... Go ahead. No, I was just going to add, you know, I think um, the, the one thing that Brent and I have both been very clear about for a long time. We've been teaching entrepreneurship together, designing courses together for a long time is, you know, we don't teach our entrepreneurship courses to produce entrepreneurs. We've been really, you know, very transparent about that, that we we want to educate people about what entrepreneurship is. So, you know, we we had this like sort of notional test of like moving the needle. You know, come in with all your preconceptions. Tell us how you think, how you yeah. feel about entrepreneurship. What are your, what valence do you bring to it? And then our goal over the course of our classes is to move the needle, not 
move it more positive yeah. or more negative. Uh, you know, we just want to move the needle to kind of shake you, you know, give you some insight into the what this thing called entrepreneurship really is that you you know you've picked up from all these cultural you know you've been watching yeah. too much uh shark tank or whatever like wait right. a minute here. Yeah. This, this is the the real thing and so for us like storytelling that's part of it uh not not certainly not all of it mm -hmm. um, but but we're definitely not trying to create uh you know, the entrepreneurship toolkit for the future here. This is very much like that's interesting, um, at least in, yeah. in the way I think we approach it is uh, we want to de demythologize it. And um, and we certainly don't want to, you know, there's this kind of, I think, le very legitimate concern that the kind of corporatized university is has just like, mm. you know, put all its chips in on entrepreneurship and innovation to sort of um, I'm not sure quite what to, you know, um, commercialize technology or to generate revenue or to produce uh, big donors. Yep. I, I'm not sure exactly what the overall logic is, although obviously innovation's critically important. Lee, you know that more than any. But but I think, you know, Brent and I have been very careful to not be on that train, you know, so uh -huh. uh, that that, you know, you can take an entrepreneurship course and graduate, do well in that course without um, walking out sort of brainwashed into thinking you should become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's how I teach. Oh, go ahead. Brent. Oh, I was yeah. going to even just to, to double down on what David's saying. The evidence is, is if you want to become an entrepreneur, you know, the, 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 the best age is somewhere around 40, not 20. And, right. and uh, undergraduates, yeah. They don't, well, young people don't have a lot of worldly experience because they're young. <laughs> and it takes time yeah. to gather that. Right. And that helps you a lot navigate the uncertainties mm. and the ambiguities of, uh, of entrepreneurship. Yeah. No, this is, it's interesting because this is how I teach my innovation class too. It's, you know, I have people explain to me what innovation is and how it works. And then the first half of the course is actually oriented around myth busting, where I do exactly what you're talking about. And I'm, one of the things I talk about is the over 40 entrepreneurs thing. Cause I'm like, you know, you need to know markets. You need to have some domain expertise. You need to understand, you need to have, to have social networks and understand social networks. And that's all stuff that you really need to be in a bureaucracy somewhere to uh, to learn about um, before you go off on your own. So um, I want to talk to a bit about more about narrative. Uh, Brent, you put this on David. So, David, do you remember when uh, when this started popping out to you that narrative um, played an important part in this story? Well, I think in a way we considered a number of other aspects of the model like we weren't sure it was narrative initially you know we talked about uh coordinating events right events that 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 kind of coordinate beliefs and maybe we it, it wasn't that you need a yeah. consistent narrative across time but you just need you know president polk saying you know there's gold in them our hills um and yeah. and you get a get a gold rush um and and but we realized that in fact 
for a lot of the technologies where we did observe bubbles, we couldn't find single coordinating events. So that that was like that that theory was a little too parsimonious and too you know, it was like yeah. too clever by a half. It didn't really work. Or uh, we also at, at various times thought about you know retail facing. Oh, the technology has to be retail facing for there to be you know, it has to kind of touch consumers in some way. And if it's a consumer facing, you know, but then we would find technologies that are consumer yeah. facing that didn't have bubbles. So like that didn't work. So yeah. I think we kind of had to iterate to it and, and uh, kind of come around to this idea that there was something about um, how people understood a technology and that understanding a technology didn't happen uh, from a blackboard or a, um, a, you know, a technical report, but happened sort of in conversation, in narrative, um, and, and how it was reported through the media, et cetera. And so, so I think we, it, it, it wasn't that I was like, oh, I'm a historian, I'm going to talk about narrative. We kind of, I think mm -hmm. we sort of backed onto it in a way or backed into it because some of our other explanatory uh, concepts were inadequate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brent, you want to add um, anything to that? No, I, I, I think that the only, the only thing I will add, and uh, but maybe I've already said this, is that the power of narrative and our understanding of it uh, really strengthened over time. You know, so like I, I think mm. one of the key moments for me was the space race. And so there was... Mm -hmm. kind of an aviation jet engine sort of storyline behind the bubble in um, in, a, in in well in jet engines in the last in the late 50s and the storyline was all about the space race and defense it wasn't about I'm gonna go buy a jet airplane for myself you know like I guess you had that in the Jetsons but yeah uh, is one offshoot of that storyline but the reality is that's not how that's not what the discourse was. And then you realize that it's like, OK, mm. it, it's about things that make for good stories as opposed to uh, and command our attention. And that can come from the fact that you use it, which is where we started with the retail technology, which, by the way, still matters. Right? Like, I don't think Tesla would be what yeah, it is right. if the same people investing in the stock didn't also own Tesla's. And, and so, mm -hmm. and, and probably you could think of Bitcoin in a similar sort of way. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, the, um, that's not sufficient. It wasn't, a, it wasn't good enough. And we needed mm -hmm. a, an explanation that was a little bit more powerful. And that's where narrative came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys to, to talk a bit about naive investors, but I think maybe we can talk about them in a different way by um, just asking a simple question. Do you guys think we're in a tech bubble right now? We talked about Tesla, but do you think the bubble's bigger? Oh, David, this is your entree to talk about specs. <laughs> right? Right? Like, it's the perfect time. I think I, I think you know there's been this real explosion of these special purpose acquisition companies, this known as SPACs, where SPACs. you just you know where everybody is uh, you know 
A-Rod has a SPAC, Shaq uh, has a SPAC, uh, you know, every, you know, kind of two-bit billionaire has a SPAC, and they're out there, um, you know, kind of raising money to then go overbid for um, taking private companies public when the incentives are all screwed mm. up and the, the SPAC uh, kind of organizers are going to get 20% off the top, and there's... Uh, lots of uncertainty in those processes. So I, I, I think, you know, uh, it, it, it's a parlor game around Silicon Valley. You'll, you know, are we in a bubble? Oh, you know, and people yeah, yeah. kind of adduce the arguments pro and con or whatever. But I, I just think it's it's very hard to, when you look, uh, um, uh, I mean, I guess my real concern, so I actually bring this back to Tesla in a way, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of these SPACs have been electric vehicle, alternative fuel, battery technology based. There's, a you know, probably not, mm-hmm. not a, um, certainly not the majority of them, but probably, you know, I'd guess 10 or 15% of them have been um, electric vehicle based. And, you know, the argument goes something like, well, if Tesla's worth 800 billion, we're worth at least like 5 billion. You know, and so yeah. and, and you're like, no, but you're not because uh, Tesla's not. Um, and so I think there is this right. kind of Tesla is kind of the penumbra under which a lot of this mm. kind of bubbling logic kind of uh, is is protected and and yeah. and spreads. And so I, I think, you know, my real concern is just um, where do the bubbles kind of what isn't the bubble right now? You know, I mean, how you say, yeah. oh, well, it's uh, SPACs. And then you say, oh, well, no, it's, you know, um, what about it's the S&P 500? Because, you know, it's a third, that's a $30 trillion market cap and Tesla's, you know, 4% of it. And you own it in your mm-hmm. 401k that, you know, has yeah. indexed investments. And then you say, well, it's all being, um, you know, kind of, uh, propped up by the Federal Reserve's balance sheet buying junk bonds. And you're like, what is the, or munis or whatever the Fed is buying today. They'll buy whatever, you know, um, they can. So uh, anyway, I I get a little bit lost figuring out where the, where the bubble stops and where the fundamentals begin. And that's where I hope Brent will will save us because he's actually an economist and not a a paranoid, uh, uh, you know, person. I, I, I was going to, um, I'm not a macroeconomist, nor am I a financial economist, um, thankfully, um, for my own sanity. But the, I, the one thing I will add about SPACs is that these are opaque yeah. sort of, in, they're opaque instruments. And, it, it, and, and we, we know that the, the, um, the, the companies th- that that are purchased through SPACs are not vetted in the same way as an IPO mm-hmm. uh, uh, because in this sort of kind of backdoor IPO process. And I would imagine that many of the investors in SPACs are not expert investors yeah. either. Right? And so you, you have precisely the conditions for a bubble where you've got an instrument that is not well understood, that 
appears to be fail safe because with a SPAC you can uh, always just get your money back with interest. Mm. And uh, and that is, and it, it seems very unlikely. Oh, and then you've got some, if it's very unlikely it's not a bubble, then you have some powerful narratives behind this, such as mobility uh, and electric vehicles, which are kind of convergent narratives. Yeah. There's nothing that requires a self-driving car be electric. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, those sorts of things are, and, and this imagination of a world in which you push a button and a electric car comes to your door and drives you wherever you are while you get to play Tetris. I guess you don't play Tetris anymore, <laughs> dating myself, um, is, is uh, attractive. Yeah. That's a really attractive narrative. Mm -hmm. And so it, it shouldn't surprise us that that could be a focus of a lot of speculative activity yeah. and a bubble. I guess, I don't know if you guys have been following the work of Jeffrey Funk or or if you agree with his analyses, but he's been doing a lot of analysis recently on profitability of IPOs and startups more generally and in using like a 10 year cutoff as like, you know, startups are going to be unprofitable for a long time. But like, let's start looking at like firms that have at least been around for 10 years. And he finds that like compared to like the 1980s and 1990s, profitability is like way, way down. Like it was over 80 percent in for unicorn firms. It was over 80 percent in the 80s. And now it's like under 20 percent or something like that. And then you like start looking at the firms like, you know, Lyft and Uber and WeWork and, um, you know, Grubhub. I mean, the list is like quite long, right, of all these like kind of hot firms that are not profitable. And, you know, they all have narratives around them. It's for, for me, for most of these things, it's actually quite difficult to see how the business model would be like high growth at any point or high profit. So I, I guess like that's the when I when I asked the question, that's the kind of broader context I was thinking of is like not just Tesla, um, but, you know, there's actually, you know, I think and in Brent, you put it on Twitter once you put it this way. You said something like you didn't use the word bubble. I'm going to substitute that word. You're like you can expect a bubble when like traditional firms describe themselves as, as like digital firms or something like that. Right. And that's the that's the shared thing about all these companies is that they're all like digital data. I'm putting quotation marks around around these words. I don't know. Yeah. So so it, it's quite so. Um, yes. And we've um, I, I have like three answers to your observation or three comments <laughs> to your observation. Um, hopefully I'll get to all three or maybe there aren't really three. But like one is it's very interesting to compare this to autos in the early 20th century because autos were profitable or some of the like the kind of the leading auto companies many lost money and went bankrupt uh, but the profitable ones were profitable from the get-go mm -hmm. now ford was founded like the ford company that eventually survived there were three of them and the third one was the one that worked uh, was founded with five thousand dollars of investment capital think fifty to sixty thousand dollars today Right. It, it like not a lot of money. Yeah. And they were able to bootstrap the entire venture because they could sell their cars before they built them. And they financed it that way. And uh, pretty and, you know, it was one of the most successful enterprises of the 20th century. And uh, just in contrast, 
like to really emphasize the point that um, Jeffrey Funk is making. Right? And this is similar to what we saw during the dot-com era where uh, David and I wrote in our paper that it was all about, you know, get big fast and worry about the profits later. Yeah. Uh, a very, very similar sort of argument. And so, yes, this is a, a, a big problem. It's really interesting to think about not just um, the, the companies that you're m mentioning, like Uber and Lyft and Grubhub, but there's another interesting co company called Luckin, Luckin Coffee, and Luckin was a it's a US, it was traded here, uh, but it's a, it was a, they're now bankrupt, which is kind of the point of the story. But they had this idea that they were going to be a coffee network. I don't know what a coffee network is, but it's in their S1, and uh, and they were going to compete. They were they were a retailer in China and they basically just delivered coffee to people. And so the idea is they would have these kind of light real estate stores, unlike a Starbucks where you actually go in and sit and drink your coffee, and people would order coffee and they would, uh, and you get it delivered. And if you've been to China, uh, you, you can get anything delivered by, by somebody on a, on a little scooter. And uh, they were caught fabricating their sales data. So literally fraud, and this eventually led to the bankruptcy of the company, and um, and so this is just the extreme version of a story. Like they needed a story that would command investors. They decided the story was they needed to have some plausible path to profitability, and they couldn't generate that. So people inside the firm made stuff up. Mm -hmm. The, the difference is, and this is really interesting, Uber and Lyft, if you look at their S1s, they make similar sorts of statements. Mm. Lyft is kind of the worst at this. They're, they're basically saying, you bet on us now, and we're going to control the, the self-driving car space and be like the app that yeah. everybody comes to. They've since um, divested any interest they have in self-driving technology. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, the it hasn't been sustainable the, the, the their business isn't isn't long-term sustainable the the cool thing is as a way to think about those companies is that the sovereign like so the the uh, Saudi sovereign wealth fund is subsidizing our transportation through Lyft right and Uber and like I guess that's nice <laughs> it hasn't been so good for the drivers yeah um, yeah, or public I, I transit, see, maybe. Yeah. The day of yeah, reckoning will come. Saudi yeah. sovereign wealth fund is going to get paid back by the lucid SPAC. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. To compensate yeah. some of their billions of losses. Yeah, there was a really nice piece in the. There was a really nice piece in the New Yorker, uh, maybe a month ago, and. Uh, they make the point that, and they talk about WeWork. WeWork is kind of the main protagonist that links together that narrative. And the investors, the VCs in, in WeWork, they got out fine. Yeah. Like, it looks like they're, they do not lose money. Right. There were a lot of other people that lost money. Yeah. Right? But in the game of musical chairs, you just have to be not the last one. Mm-hmm. You guys end the book by... Um... 
talking about public policy, and I think that's like a, a nice place to land, actually. So, I mean, I think hype is normal, you know, around technology markets. And as you said, it's just a part of entrepreneurship is is creating narratives of kind of like glorious futures that the 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 entrepreneur and the company are going to be a part of. Um, but what is what is the implications for your theory for policymaking and, and how we should all be thinking about these issues? David, do you want to kick it off? Yeah, uh, you know, um, I think uh, it just our level of general financial literacy is so poor. Uh, you know, so when I think of uh, that poor kid, the Robin Hood kid who committed uh, suicide because yeah. he didn't understand what, you know, um, options were and margins and, you know, didn't. I mean, I just, that's, that's heartbreaking. Um, and so I, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're, we're, and, and so I think there's, we need so much more, uh, so much greater financial literacy than we have. But I, but I also just think like our lives, you know, just if you ask me personally, this, this is not in the book particularly, but uh, it's sort of our next book is like, we're way too exposed yeah. to markets. I feel like in our lives, mm. our, I think our well-being is just way too, it, it, we shouldn't be, like, I'm all for, for capitalism. I, I am. I think it has, you know, improved yeah. our lives in, in countless ways, even people who were not themselves, you know, who were exploited by capitalists. <laughs> um, their yeah. kids live longer because of, uh, of capitalist economic development. So, I'm, you know, we don't want to, throw the baby out with yeah. the bathwater, but man, it is just, if, if we're not, if we don't try and figure out some way to insulate our day-to-day existences from, from the vagaries mm. of, of some of these uh, kind of fluctuations, we're, we're, we're just not going to be a very happy people down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I, I and I should, uh, I should point listeners to Scott Sandage's book, Born Losers, which is a kind of history of how our lives became intertwined with markets yeah. in, in ways that just weren't true before the 19th century or, or so. Yeah, and, no, and I, th- I love uh, Scott's book. And I think it, it really does, like we're just kind of living the 100, 150 years past that in a way of, you know, yeah. more and more kind of exposure to those forces. Yeah. Brent? Yeah. So um, in a way, I think that that chapter is the weakest part of the book. So if you were going to choose not to read any particular chapter, that's the chapter you don't read. Uh, the, 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 the main point behind it is that investors should spend a lot more time understanding what they're investing in and the old adage, which we know is if a story is too good to be true, it probably isn't. And, and so understanding our own susceptibility to stories and in, in, in good stories, I think, yeah. can uh, really avoid a lot of heartbreak. Yeah. Uh, and, and if I were to, that, that would be the, the, the primary mm-hmm. um, thing. Like we have some ideas or we've thought about some ideas of what you, of what you could do to um, taper 
some of these effects. Like you could imagine an S1 where they have a success narrative and a failure narrative. Yeah. Because right now what they do is they have a success narrative and then the risks are just a list that aren't put together in a story. Yeah. Well, if we th understand that people think in stories, let's create that failure narrative. Written by somebody else, the, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and put that together and yeah. some people will say, well, that means that fewer people will invest and my value will go down. And I would say, yes. Right. Like that, that that's the point. The, But... I don't want to lose. I'm not down on capitalism generally. Yeah. Like it. It. it, it my, my advisor Nate Rosenberg. He he liked to talk about uh, one metric, which was uh, maternal mortality mm, totally. in childbirth. And it used to be one in six women would die in childbirth over the course of their lives, and that means that everybody you knew. Like, like you knew somebody who died of, died of childbirth. Yeah. And today, I think many people don't know anybody yeah. who has died in childbirth. And so th that is just a wonderful improvement in the human condition. Yeah. And it came about because of the system we live in, which has been capitalism. Yeah. And, and so I, I... You talk about mundanity. I mean, people just don't understand the c-section as like maybe the most important life-changing thing that was you know in medicine that was ever created was the modern c-section um, not on so, our list because uh, guy, it was a bunch of white guys <laughs> right yeah fair um guys what then you david you already kind of mentioned the point of the next project is it a is it a book about entrepreneurship and how to do better on these issues how are you guys framing it now so i think um, what we're really, that, that's the most hurtful question you've asked all day because we've been so busy with thousands of other things. We haven't talked about it, yeah. uh, you know, really since, since, uh, well, actually over the summer we did, uh, some, we had a, a little reading group, uh, with a cool. impressive young, uh, student who was helping us kind of understand some current writings about capitalism and, uh, helping kind of orient our thinking. But. But I think, you know, we're, we're calling it, again, for lack of a, a better word, I'm sure the editors will eventually, uh, you know, talk us off of this, but experimentalism and mm -hmm. trying to focus on this idea of uh, economic experiments as really the essence of, of capitalist economic development. And that what uh, what we want to try and do is, as we think about designing uh, our social systems, you know, behind the veil of ignorance, et cetera. Uh, we want to maximize the fraction of people who can undertake economic experiments, who can engage in entrepreneurship, not out of necessity, but out of desire and uh, opportunity. And, and I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I think there's some, some, kind of common interest here. I, I'm thinking of like Raj Chetty's work on the lost Einsteins of uh, this project that looks mm -hmm. at, you know, patents that weren't filed by people who lacked access to certain resources and complementary assets that would have allowed them to generate innovations, et cetera. So, you know, I think, I think that's kind of the direction we see the, this next project going is not, is kind of maybe a little bit entrepreneurship for everybody. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, or, or yeah. as many people as possible. The, the, yeah. 
the the flip side of that is that a failure to democratize i don't know if i want to use the word democratize it's such a loaded term but the the the, the failure to provide opportunities across our society yeah is fundamentally destabilizing yeah capitalism in of it itself is a system that is unstable because it has incentives to innovate and replace things in the past and that uh, makes jobs obsolete uh, makes firms obsolete etc yeah. so it is a fundamentally unstable system and I think we've seen many cases many times in history when the fear of that lack of stability or the fear of that fear of change has led to some pretty negative political forces and demagoguery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I could, you know, you can think of Trump, you can think of um, darker movements yeah. like Nazis and, and like those, all of those movements came out of really uncertain times and difficult situations for a lot of individuals. Yeah. And so if we don't address the stability of the system as a whole, uh, we may not have a system. Yeah. Well, we should stop right at that very dark place <laughs> and just leave it right there, I think. Yes. <laughs> Guys, this was as fun uh, as I thought it would be. So thanks so much for talking to me today. You bet. Our pleasure. Uh, if we ever start a, uh, a podcast, you'll be our first guest, Lee. Absolutely, Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>